Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers that reminds you to call your mother. I'm your host, Tom Powers. On this episode, I talk to director Liz Garbus. She's covered a wide range of topics from death row inmates to the singer Nina Simone. With any film that's actually been successful or good, I've gotten there with that on that film where I just feel like, how is this ever going to work? I don't know how I can make that transition work. Liz grew up in Manhattan. Her father is a prominent First Amendment attorney, and her mother is a homemaker and psychotherapist. Liz's first documentary, The Farm, Angola, USA, directed with Jonathan Stack, was nominated for an Oscar. She was nominated again this year for What Happened, Miss Simone. Now she has a new film that's been in the works for several years. Nothing Left Unsaid, Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper explores the close bond between the Maverick fashion designer and her journalist son. In lively conversations, Vanderbilt candidly describes the highs and lows of her eventful life. He had been married to uh, Thelma Todd, who was a quite a well-known actress, and she was died under mysterious circumstances. No sort of rumors around that maybe he had killed her, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you got married to a guy who there were rumors that he had killed his former wife? Yes, yes. Liz Garbus works and lives in the documentary stronghold of Brooklyn. Her husband, Dan Kogan, runs the documentary investment group Impact Partners, and they have two children. I sat down with her at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach in the MFA Social Documentary Film Program. I asked Liz about the steps that led to her first film, set in Louisiana's notorious Angola prison. After, after I graduated from college, I did it. It was um, Bill Clinton was running for president. I spent um, a summer on the road called like a, it was a freedom, freedom ride registering voters. And, and I came back and I started working. I was an intern at Miramax for a little while. Um, and that was kind of awful. Um, <laughs> and uh, and keeping with the legends. And keeping, yeah, indeed. You know, the phone list would constantly change because people were constantly getting fired. Um, and they, I didn't have a chair to sit in. Like I was sort of just like standing, hovering around. In any case, uh, I met, and then I met Jonathan Stack, and he, you know, wanted something in between an assistant and an intern, and I became that person. And in my years working with him, I got a bunch of different experience for a period of time. Also, um, I B-Band Kidron came into town and I worked for her as a actually as a production manager on a documentary she did. And I kind of um, began then exploring my own ideas for films. And so for perspective, uh, you, you were working as an assistant for Jonathan Stack. But who is Jonathan Stack? What was so he Jonathan doing? Stack is a filmmaker, a New York documentary filmmaker, and he had made a film along with Nick Broomfield called Damned in the USA. It was about free speech. And there was actually a free speech lawsuit against them, a civil liberties lawsuit against them. And so you, maybe you can guess if you um, where this is going. My father was involved as, of counsel on that lawsuit where a Christian group had tried to come after the filmmakers. Um, I wrote Jonathan a letter knowing about him through my father. And so that was how I was uh, I met him. And, then, and so at that point, Jonathan was also involved in developing a film called Harlem Diary, where he was giving kids video cameras working with a writer in Harlem named uh, Terry Williams. and uh, But in any case, I started doing my own research for a documentary for B-Ban. And B-Ban wanted to make a film 
about love at first sight, people falling in love at first sight. Well, one of the stories was about a costume designer, a Hollywood costume designer, who went to do the costumes um, on a shoot in a prison. It was for um, the film Dead Man Walking with Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. And she had fallen in love with an inmate there. And I needed to research as B-Band's production manager, how do you get access to this prison? How could I tell this story about this costume designer and this inmate at Louisiana State Penitentiary? And... I found out through the costume designer and, and through the, her, her lover, her boyfriend, that there was a guy at Louisiana State Penitentiary who kind of an inmate who knew everything about the way the prison worked. And that was a man named Wilbert Rideau. Wilbert Rideau was a journalist inmate who was sentenced to life. He had started a newspaper in the prison called The Angolite. And he was, you know, kind of the joke was like he was a prisoner with his own phone line. He was, you know, would, would talk on Nightline about prison conditions and incarceration and issues around the death penalty. And he also just had the – he just knew everything in the prison. He was like the Bill Morris to the world of the prison. <laughs> and so I became got in touch with Wilbert. And, of course, it just appeared – it occurred to me, you know, as the, the work on that that film went in its in, – you know, went on its merry way, that there was a much bigger story here with Wilbert. And um, B-Ben went back to England, and I continued to nurture that relationship with Wilbert, and I brought it to Jonathan. And I said, you know, I think that there's an incredible film here. This guy knows so many stories in this prison. And that is how we ended up starting to work on the farm. That is such a funny kind of backdoor entrance. <laughs> right. Like, well, I got to say, it's a long story, right? So I've never, I, you know, one doesn't usually talk about this because usually interviews are quick. Um, but that's how, that's how we started the farm. And that was my first film. Here's a clip from the farm, Angola, USA, where longtime inmate George Ashanti Witherspoon gives an orientation to new prisoners. One of the things you find out while you're in penitentiary is that everybody who's close to you, over a period of time, they're all going to fade away. First, it's going to be your associates and friends, all your homies. They're going to cut you loose. Your old lady, she's going to cut you loose. Your children, aren't, a lot of you all who might have children now, as they grow up, they're going to forget you to that daddy. Usually the person that's going to stick with you is going to be your mother, your father, maybe a close brother or sister. And as you stay down a long period of time, those people who do stick by you are going to get older and older, and sometimes they're going to die off. So you're going to be here alone. But one of the things I want to show you is that when you start going through those pains of finding out that the people you thought were close to you begin to cut you loose, don't get hooked up into the negative activities that can get you stuck here forever. Despite the fact that you're doing life sins, there's always hope. Following the farm, Liz kept up a prolific output. She made several observational documentaries, including The Execution of Wanda Jean, about a woman on death row, and Girlhood, about inmates at a juvenile detention center in Maryland. More recently, her work has focused on biographical films, including Bobby Fischer Against the World, about the erratic grandmaster of chess, and Love, Marilyn, drawing upon recently uncovered writings of Marilyn Monroe. With over 20 directing credits to her name, I asked Liz which films stand out to her the most. Well, I think certainly for The Farm was an incredibly special film to me and I think to the people who were in it. And, and I don't think, you know, I think that there was a genre to some degree of prison films. And I don't think 
people are making them so so much anymore. It's and it true. may have to do with access. It may have to do with our focus on international issues, the so-called war on terror, right? Because we made the farm in 98, September 11th, 2001, a few years later. Um, I think shift, you know, has many, for many filmmakers has changed to international issues. Um, of course, issues around over-incarceration and race are ever-present. Um, but the farm... You know, it's not it's not a film about the prison system. It's a film about six men living within that system. But, you know, it was a special project. And I don't think that that there have been there hasn't been a wave of of prison films. We've seen waves of true crime films. But um, I think, you know, it stands as a very current piece in that sense. Girlhood was also a really special film. Girlhood followed girls in the juvenile justice system in Baltimore and back into their lives on the streets. And it was a film about daughters and mothers and parenting and drug use and foster care and, you know, a little girl who was 11 years old and had taken another girl's life. And how do you have a life after that? What does that look like? And, you know, I became very involved with those young women and um, still talk to them. And, you know, now they have kids of their own and you know, so it's really it was an interesting film, I think, and someone's adapting it to be a narrative now. And then I would say Bobby Fisher Against the World, I think, you know, is a film that actually for me was a, was a di- very different kind of filmmaking, structured, historical, archival oriented filmmaking. I think there are various personal reasons in life where I, I kind of shifted that way. Um, I think so it's how, very, how, yeah, how did that uh, film come about, Bobby Fisher Against the World? Well, Bobby Fisher came uh, Against the World came about because I was on a plane to Sundance. I don't, I didn't have a film at Sundance, but I was just going for maybe because Dan, my husband Dan Kogan had some, who was also in this art business, had some films there, and I read Bobby Fischer's obituary, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is an incredible story. Who's made this film? And you know, I did, I started like as soon as I got off the plane. I don't think we had Wi-Fi then on the planes. That um, I started looking. Who's made a film about Bobby Fischer? This life is an incredible story of America. It's an American tragedy. It's an extraordinary story. It's a story about the Cold War. It's a story about mental illness and genius. Um, and their connections, and uh, nobody had. And so um, I started that, you know, I got to Sundance. And, of course, then you start watching movies, and your brain is on, mind is on fire, and it just, like, it became very obsessive. And I started putting that film together right after that. Um, And as I said, I think there were some personal reasons why I wanted to make an archival film. I had two really small children um, making a film like Girlhood, being in Baltimore um, over the course of three and a half years, Getting, you know, call, not really being able to keep a schedule, getting calls where, you know, you have to go down the next day because somebody has a hearing or somebody's gotten locked up. Um, you know, it's hard to do that with really young children. So the idea of making a film that was just as interesting to me intellectually um, dealt with really interesting issues, but where I could, you know, maybe set a schedule of when, you know, of when I might shoot and and arrange, you know, Babysitting during, you know, having a having to have a real life is is a factor. So I think um, it was very appealing to me at that point for those reasons. And after the Bobby Fischer movie, you've since made film about Marilyn Monroe, Love Marilyn, of course, What Happened, Miss Simone, and now Nothing Left Unsaid. So it seemed to have kind of opened up a new thread of of filmmaking of these kind of biographical portraits. I think that's right. That's why I mentioned it when you said what are sort of three important films. I think Bobby Fischer was the first one in that direction. And I really loved working with the archival material. I loved the structural challenge. I mean, I think, you know, for Bobby Fischer, we really st- we structured it as a, as a thriller, as a, you know, Cold War thriller and a, and a sports movie. Um, and I loved working that way. Um, Love, Marilyn. 
um, was also an aesthetic departure in, in that I used actors, you know, reading and 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 that was kind of like a, another part of of the a tool set that was that was new for me. Um, and then yes, of course, you know, you can see how. Miss Simone fits into that trajectory. But in some ways, Miss Simone, you know, was a complete, such a complete expression of my filmmaking trajectory because it dealt with some of the, some of the issues that I'd been dealing with in my earliest films around race and justice in this country at the same time as it dealt with a human being, a, you know, a biographical, was a biographical film, you know, people will call it that, and an archival film dealing with mental illness, dealing with genius, dealing with art. So in many ways, it was a very complete expression of everything I've been doing and, and was a very, very exciting and special project to me for those reasons. Now, that project got started, as I understand it, because uh, the Nina Simone's family, uh, led by Lisa Simone, her daughter, were looking for a filmmaker to uh, help shape this project. Lisa Simone had tried making a film herself, had done some recording, realized that it, she would be aided by turning it over to a real professional filmmaker, and a connection was made between the two of you. That's exactly right. And I think Lisa, for many years, filmmakers had approached Lisa saying, let's make a film about your mother. Um, And she wasn't really ready to let anyone have control of of that project. She felt very protective of her mother. I think you can see now with this film with Zoe Saldana in the lead how – somebody taking an approach which doesn't feel right really would cause upsetness, not just within the family, but within the community of fans who love Nina and see her as this really transformative figure. I think it was, you know, you can see how how important she is to people and how, you know, controversial she can be in, in that sense. So I think that to let go of control was very hard. And it, um, but I think really almost because that film was going to be made, um, that one was already that, the wheels the script, were in motion. The, the wheels were in motion for this film called Nina, which I haven't seen. You know, starring Zoe Saldana, were already in motion when we got started on our movie. And I think because of the fact that there was going to be this fictionalized version of her life, they felt like no, the doc a doc on Nina, like that has Nina's voice, the real Nina has to be out there. And so, and I think she understood that she couldn't have editorial control of such a film, she couldn't make such a film, and she had to let go. And somebody introduced her to Radical Media, saying they have a lot of experience with music documentaries. This would be a good company to oversee such a thing. Radical Media connected me with Lisa. Lisa and I met. I think she felt she could trust me. Her husband actually had seen um, The Farm. Mm. And for him, like, that was it. That was all he needed to see. And he said that's, you know, they sent Radical Center a list, and he had seen, this is the story that he saw that had seen The Farm. He said, you know, Lisa, I've seen this film. This is the person who we should bring on. And and after that, was there any more of a process to gaining control of, uh, of the material? Or- no, I mean, honestly, we had the connection. They felt really comfortable with me because of the resume on the other films that they had seen. And Lisa was in a new phase in her life. She was living in Europe. She was pursuing her first kind of um, solo album and career. So she was really busy. So like, it was really the right moment because she was really encompassed with this new phase of her life. So she wasn't really focused on what was going on, I think. And so I think it was it was the perfect storm to be able to create create the creative freedom that I needed uh, to make the movie. So there wasn't a struggle um, in that sense. I was very clear from the beginning. I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I work. I find my own story. You know, I don't. This is how I work. And but it wasn't it wasn't trouble. You know, it really wasn't trouble. So one of the decisions that you make in What Happened Miss Simone, a creative decision that really impressed me, is to tell the story with relatively few voices. 
you pick some key individuals who had direct experience with with Nina Simone and use them to to tell the story. But there's often a temptation for filmmakers to, well, let me bring in some contemporary filmmakers. Let me get Beyonce to be interviewed to tell the world how great Nina Simone is. And, And you avoided that. Was that a conscious decision? It just doesn't doesn't even occur to me to include it. You know, I mean, it's just so so so. I suppose it's conscious, but it's not. It just it just. I mean, who Nina Simone was and where she, you know, how she became herself and her perceptions of the world. She didn't need validation from Beyonce or Alicia Keys or even um, Harry Belafonte. I mean, she didn't need those validations. And I think to put them in there is to underestimate our audiences. Um, ability to appreciate Nina and to learn from her and really to under underestimate my, my filmmaking you know like w- w- do I really the, hopefully the filmmaking allows Nina to rise to that level of importance because we're showing who she is and I have to trust the filmmaking and the material that I have um, I don't need someone telling people that she was important um, and uh, it really just um, that kind of thing when I see it in films it kind of it pushes me out and it gives me the the you know I don't want to hear everybody telling me why I should think someone is important I just want to feel who they are and so um, it was it was just never even a consideration yeah show not tell yeah Here is Nina Simone talking about her music in an archive clip from What Happened, Miss Simone. To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world, black people. So my job is to make them more curious about where they came from and their own identity and pride in that identity. That's why my songs, I try to make them as powerful as possible mostly just to make them curious about themselves. We don't know anything about ourselves. We don't even have the pride and the dignity of African people. But we, can, we, we, we can't even talk about where we came from. We don't know. It's like a lost race. I think different filmmakers gravitate to different parts of filmmaking. There, some filmmakers love being behind the camera, some love doing an interview, or love doing research, or love being in the edit room. And I'm curious what part of the process you feel like you thrive at the most? Mm. I definitely, I feel incredibly happy in the edit room. You know, it's sort of, I guess, the equivalent of writing a screenplay in a narrative movie. You're really working the story in, in an, you know, in an, into an arc. And, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I, I, I do feel like it's the time where you've got like mounds and mounds of goopy wet clay. And you know inside that clay there is this beautiful vase. And it's like, it's scraping away trying to find that vase. And in some ways, I think the vase exists. Like, I don't think, of course, we're making the vase and we're shaping it, but I think it has a form that it should be, and our our job is to find it. Um, and, you know, it's so interesting with the farm. The farm was a really hard edit. It was um, six different people with very different chronologies. Some guys we, we met and shot them out in 10 days. It was like, and other guys we followed over the course of a year and a half. Like, their timelines were so incredibly different. Um, and um, so the edit was challenging, and we never wanted to do story one, two, three, four, five, six. We always wanted to interweave them so they were part of a larger whole. Um, and there were just – I remember that some nights in that edit room just, like, wanting to bang my head against the wall. How will we ever find this? Um, 
and being and, and really actually getting very depressed during it. Like we maybe we won't ever find it. And then we did. I mean, it was a year. The edit was probably a year. Maybe now if I were to approach that film, I would get there faster, having more experience. Maybe that's that's what it would still take. But um, I think going through that on that film made me think that if I really think it's a great film, that there is a shape there. There is a way that it can work. And it's my job to find it. And it exists out there. So we're like excavators in that sense. And I, so that process to me is thrilling. And now when I get there with films, and I've gotten there with any film that's actually been successful or good, I've gotten there with that on that film where I just feel like, how is this ever going to work? I don't know how I can make that transition work. I think that's a universal experience. Yeah. For well, but sometimes also if, if films are kind of easy and their shapes are easy, then then I don't I don't know how interesting they really are. And but now I don't have to bang my head against the wall. I actually think of it as a good part of the process. I need to take a walk. I need to go away. I need to tell my editor, oh, you just try something, and, and then I'll come back and see, you know, if I have a new idea. You know, whatever whatever the thing is that you have to do. But I have the confidence that I'll get through it. And I just – so I love that part of the process. So on the Nina Simone documentary, what was the real crucible in the edit room? What was the toughest thing to figure out? The toughest thing to figure out, again, and it's not, it's not a dissimilar challenge to what I was talking about with the farm, is how to keep all the threads in play. I mean here is a human being who had great struggle – what caused the struggle? You don't want to give one. There's no not a one answer. Did mental illness cause her demons? Sure, you know, she had her vulnerabilities. But racism in America caused those demons. Being a, a dark-skinned performer in a, in and and somebody who had a tremendous genius in a in a time that wasn't even comfortable with that that kind of genius caused those demons. And so it's a question of how do you keep when you when you have a cut when you have an edit it's you're moving from one idea to the next. How do you keep that from feeling clearly causal? Because you want to say okay, she had a breakdown. So whatever scene you put before the breakdown is going to imply causality. So how do you but how do you so how do you keep those threads all constantly alive so that you're allowing the great complexity of life to to try to express itself. So that was the struggle. And the name of the film, What Happened, Miss Simone, is to ask the question, but not, and to hopefully suggest to the to the watcher that, that what happened were all of these things that we talk about in the movie, not one thing. In a minute, I'll talk to Liz Garbus about her new film on Gloria Vanderbilt. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by Sundance Now Doc Club. Watch documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers and featuring the work of filmmakers such as Errol Morris, Agnes Barda, and Nick Broomfield. Now on Doc Club, you can explore the collection of films on parenting, including Nursery University, a funny and disturbing look at the competition to enter elite Manhattan preschools. Nursery University is just one of hundreds of documentaries you can start watching now on Sundance Now Doc Club. Download the Doc Club app or go to docclub.com to sign up for a free month. In Liz Garbus's new film, Nothing Left Unsaid, Gloria Vanderbilt opens up about her regrets and her romances as she's interviewed by her son, Anderson Cooper. Maybe they're not love letters at all, but I somehow think they are. Do you still think that the next great love? Of course it's going to happen. You think the next great love is right around the corner? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Is there anyone I should know about right now? No. <laughs> I think Ben Brantley said he's never met somebody over the age of 16 who loves being in love as much as you. That's true. I think we should always be in love. The film came to Liz through the head of HBO documentary films, Sheila Nevins. Sheila and Anderson had talked to each other at an event for the late Gordon Parks. Um, and Anderson mentioned to her, you know, I've got some these boxes of tapes and, you know, sort of history from my family and about my mother. And I think maybe, you know, we should make a documentary about it. And Sheila, I think sort of, you know, like, like my reaction at first was, well, what what has already been out there and what, what do we have to say that's new? You know, what is our role in this? Because they're very famous people um, who, unlike Bobby Fischer and Nina Simone, had been covered in in some way, in, in different ways. But I thought, you know, let me meet them. Let me see what what I feel when I, when I meet them. And what happened was, you know, first of all, when you hear about boxes... Actually, let me interject here. Yeah. You told me that when Sheila Nevin said to you, we're going to make a film about... We're thinking about making a film about Anderson Cooper's mother. What did you say? Well, I said, who's Anderson Cooper's mother? <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if it's such a glorious story to repeat. It just makes me sound like a little bit of an idiot. But in any case, I wasn't so I wasn't so inside the, the lore of, of that family tree, obviously, um, even though I grew up in this city and uh, certainly what had been to Grand Central about? Station a few times in my life. But, um, no, I didn't know anything about that. Um, and I didn't know anything about his what had happened with his brother. I didn't know about his. I mean, I didn't know any of this stuff. So you were coming uh, at it like many viewers <laughs> as uh, yeah. as an outsider. Although many, maybe many viewers knew 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 what I didn't know, but I just can't keep this stuff straight. So in any case, um, yeah, I first I, I sounded like an idiot and I said, "Who's Anderson Cooper's mother?" And then I thought, "Okay, let me meet this Anderson Cooper and this." I knew who they were. Let me meet them and see what I think and what I feel because I don't want to just make some talking heads film, you know. And uh, now. But I'll also say the idea of boxes of videotapes and material, when anybody says that to me, it's like a way straight into my heart. It's like putting a piece of chocolate cake in front of me. It's just like, oh, I can't resist dipping in, you know, to see what's in there. And it's funny because now people email me about, you know, with giving, oh, we want to make a film about so-and-so and there's boxes of tapes. And now I'm getting suspicious because it's like not everybody can have those all those boxes of tapes. Um, well, now after this interview, people know exactly how to pitch you. I know, but now I'm very wise. Warehouses of tapes. Yeah, They're going to raise the stage. And if they say cans of film, then I'm even more excited. But yeah. Um, but in any case, so that was how this started. And indeed, he did have cans of film and boxes and boxes of tapes and boxes and boxes of letters and paintings. And Gloria has saved everything. Her love letters from her you know, 12-year-old first love. She's it's got it quite all. extraordinary yeah. in the film. Uh, <laughs> now, so here's another case where – you're you're entering a family's lore. So it you're coming in, you're gonna have some outside control as a filmmaker, but you're also having to work with a family. Am I right that this film actually started before the Nina Simone film? Yes, it did. So the film started before Nina Simone. So this was um this was two and a half, three years ago now. Yeah. So what kind of concerns do you have walking into a, a family's history and and a family that is uh, not unsavvy about 
media. And- right, quite the opposite. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, as you know, because you've seen the film and people see that there's an innocence to Gloria that, you know, sa- you know, she certainly is savvy, but she's not hardened or wise in that way. Right. Anderson is in the, be- you know, in the, the belly of the beast, right, he, in terms of where, where he stands in the media. But frankly, I mean, a little bit like Lisa Simone, the man is so busy that, you know, he's not really paying attention. Right. <laughs> to he and, and, he will, and he will pay attention when I say I have a question or I would love to show you something or whatever the thing is, but he really is, you know, he's a hard guy to get on the phone. You know, he's a quite a busy guy. So those things work very well. I think I would have a very hard time working with someone in that situation who was focused on me. You know, I, I think that would be a, an issue. But in neither of these cases did they have the time or inclination to focus on me. And I think Anderson understood when he was working with someone like me um, that 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 would be part of the deal. Um, and he very, you know, early on said, like, I can't make this film. You know, I don't want to, I don't know how to make this film. I don't want to make this film. It's not what I do. So um, he gave me that space. So the the heart of this film are these very intimate conversations between Anson Cooper and uh, Gloria Vanderbilt. Uh, I, I take it they were, that there's a number of conversations that took place uh, to put that together, am I right about well, that? Well, I mean, Anderson. There's this. There's kind of a centerpiece interview in the film, which is Anderson and Gloria, and um, we shot that over the course of two or three days. Um, the rest of the film, I shot much in the manner that I shoot most of my films, which is in that more you know, fly on the wall way. So spent a lot of time with Gloria in her studio, spent time with Gloria in her, you know, getting dressed in her dressing room, um, spend time with them as they would, you know, kind of meet and chat, spend time with them at dinner, you know, so there was that kind of thing. But the, but the centerpiece of the interview, which is does the heavy storytelling work of the film is that interview reference. Um, and, at, you know, honestly, at first, I'm so used to making films the way I make them that I assumed I would do all the interviews. And of course, I interview Anderson, and I interview his brother and his uh, cousin and but um Anderson suggested that he interview his mother which of course made perfect sense because actually what it turns out I think the you know and I'll g- I give him credit for this the the one you know the some of the warmth and the availability the accessibility of the film is that banter back and forth and um it makes you fall in love with them and you really see him learning stuff on screen that he didn't know before and so it was quite a smart idea to to allow that interview to be done by him. Well, that part is quite extraordinary. I, you know, I'm thinking there's many, many moments like that where you see him hearing something for the first time, yeah. apparently. The, uh, there's one that sticks in my memory where Gloria tells him that she got married when she was 17 to someone who had been rumored to have killed his first wife. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. No, he's and he's just like, what? You know, and that didn't give you pause? And it's like these generational differences coming together. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's an amazing moment. And also, you know, when she was 20, then she married a man who was 63. And I don't think he ever, I mean, of course, she knew he married, she married this man. She had two kids with him. But I don't think he ever had kind of put together the image of the 20-year-old ingenue, you know, with the 63-year-old. Uh, you know, world famous composer and what that looked like. And he says, well, didn't any of your friends think it was weird? I mean, it was just kind of this coming together of these different generations. Um, that was really wonderful, you know, to to be a fly on the wall for those moments. Now, in, in setting up those interviews, how much conversation did you and Anderson have about what was being discussed? Or did you kind of just let him go with it and and capture what happened? 
Um, no, we prepped him. I mean, we gave, you know, we, my, you know, not just me, but I had an incredible, you know, I had a wonderful co-producer, read every book that Gloria had written, read everything that Anderson had written, and really also start, you know, looking at the archive, understanding what the, you know, understanding her life story, maybe at that point, in terms of detail, more than Anderson did, because he had really not looked at the Vanderbilt history, as he said. So we armed him with those questions so that we could elicit those kinds of responses. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny idea. You did research on his own mother for. Yes, but as he says, he really didn't focus on the Vanderbilt side. She was really um, not so in- involved in the Vanderbilt workings and doings. And, you know, it's not like she was giving parties at the Breakers. And, you know, she wasn't in- so involved with that side of the family. Um, and, you know, as she says, she was actually always felt like an outsider in that way. And as he says, he was really connected to the Cooper side of the family. And he went to those family gatherings and he knew all those family members. But he didn't know. So, yeah, so so it, w- it was important to give him details about the trial, about um, all and, and, and because he, he hadn't wanted to necessarily focus on that part of their history. So you do this interview with Anderson Cooper because you kind of weave a thread of his biography into this film. And it appears to me that you're doing the interview in his office, and I can't imagine how that gets fit into his uh, busy schedule. But that interview really gets to uh, an emotional place. I mean, there's there's a point where he chokes up. and, And I wanted to ask you about what it's like interviewing the person who is doing interviews with world leaders every night. Yeah, it's very intimidating to interview Anderson Cooper, for sure. I mean, we did one interview in his home, and we were working, you know, on editing the film, and I actually kind of realized while I was editing it that interview didn't go deep enough, that it didn't just need to be Gloria's, you know, arc, that there needed to be something of Anderson and his arc. So that second interview, when we we actually did it in his office, was where I, you know, I pushed on some some issues that I think I really only fully understood once I was in the edit room kind of working with the material, how how he changed and how he began to kind of need to understand his parents and identify with them or, you know, push away from them in different ways. And I think his sorrow for like for lost connections in terms of his brother and, and not being able to reach across, you know, that distance that forms between two people at moments and, and some of those regrets. So that interview, uh, yeah, it was intimidating to do it. But Anderson is a kind and generous person and he always made me feel feel like everything I was asking was okay. And, you know, so I I felt very supported by him in that way. A lot of people, when they hear the name Gloria Vanderbilt, they think of a fashion figure, they think of a socialite, and that that may be a turnoff for watching a a film. They may Mm -hmm. think, like, you know, how deep can a film be about a, a fashion figure? What would you like them to know about this film to overcome that. Well, honestly, I th- I mean, I mean not to be I-, I think that's a little bit of a of a sexist and reductive posture towards a film. Um, you know, I think that if I if I've ever heard that critique or that in the Twitter sphere, I actually think that it is reductive and um and yeah, kind of sexist actually. I think this is a woman who's accomplished an extraordinary amount. Yes, she came from wealth, but she knew suffering and she's known loss and she survived it. And for me, I who and I've been around some different places in my life. I've spent time in prisons. I've spent time as you know, watching a man lose his life on you know on death row. I've learned a lot from those people. I and I learned a lot from Gloria Vanderbilt. I learned a lot about how you survive the worst thing that you one of the worst things that you can imagine watching your son die in front of you. How do you survive that? To reduce that to, oh, this is a film about a rich person and a socialite fashion lady is to actually not understand much about the human condition. 
This film is so much about a relationship between children and their parents, grown children uh, and their parents. I wonder if it made you think about your own relationship with your parents. Well, that's actually, yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. It made me realize that life can be filled with busyness and distraction. And, you know, much, much of that is wonderful, but that it ends and and um, that we have a very, you know, we walk, there's a quote, we walk this earth but once. And we have a very small time to kind of get to know the people that we love and be kind to them and support them and listen to them and learn from them. And I think, you know, this film for Anderson was a way of him him doing that with his parent. And we won't all have a film made about us to be able to do that, but we should do it nonetheless. And I think it's made me more attentive. It's made me call my mother more, <laughs> you know, as the Jewish mother employs, call your mother. It's made me call my mother and and do it with a sense of like of of honor and joy that she's that she's here to tell her stories. And, you know, I have a grandmother who's turning 100 in May and, you know, she sur- survived a tremendous amount. And, you know, it's just honoring those stories and, and listening and taking the moments while you have them. I want to thank Liz Garbus for joining us. You can watch her films The Farm, Angola, USA, and What Happened, Miss Simone on Netflix, and see Bobby Fischer Against the World and Nothing Left Unsaid on HBO. On our next episode, I visit with the director, Jonathan Demme. He's well known for fiction films like Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia, but he's also maintained a steady output of documentary films about Haiti, Jimmy Carter, and post-Katrina New Orleans. I think I just found myself just gravitating towards a way, towards the oxygen of documentary filmmaking, the, the savings-consuming uh, oxygen of documentary filmmaking. And I love to share, for anyone who's interested, um, the things that turn me on enough to make me want to go film. And again, it's almost always some kind of inspirational thing. I, I will never make an expose um, you know, I will never reveal the hideous truth about someone or get to the bottom of some conspiracy. I love those films, but that's not what my toolkit does. I, my biggest asset as a filmmaker has always been my enthusiasm. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's what I got to go by. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., coordinating producer Rachel Fishman Federson and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.